nice. Sean Arocha. Indeed. I am so glad that you're here. Um, for context for the audience, I just want to share to kind of frame and start our conversation. Full transparency, I've been looking forward to the opportunity to picking your brain since I met you at the end of September. Uh, so for everybody listening, Sean and I met running 24 hours of Palmer Lake. Um, and you're one of those guys. So I met you, we met well in to the race. Like, you know, we've seen each other as the right. race was starting and stuff, but yep. we were deep into the pain cave, you know, by the time, by the time we met and, uh, I knew instantly that you were my people. We were running, I don't know how far in we were, but we were probably, I mean, we were definitely 40 miles plus yep. into the run. It was near the end of the daylight hours. Right. And uh, we're sharing some laps, and you started sharing with me your perspective on presence yeah, and people being present and things like that. And uh, I just instant, it's, it's funny, I was even, I've, I was telling my wife afterwards, this is only the second time I've met you in person. And I feel like I've got a lifelong, you know, fast friends because of just instant depth and real connection. Um, and so I'm just, I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm excited to know you. We went on a, a 10 mile run this morning and I was joking with you that you're just dumb enough to, you know, show up and show up and, and do that with me. But very sincerely, thank you so much for being here for taking the time out of your day. It's a holiday today and I know how busy you are and things like that, but I'm just thrilled. And so one of the things I want to, I mean, I cannot wait to hear your whole story because, you know, I've, I've perused through your Instagram and we've shared some miles together and we've, you know, I, I feel like we're, like I said, kind of, you know, longtime friends, even though I've only known you for 30 days or so with Agreed. just the depth and messaging and all, all of the communication that we've already had. But I'd love to hear just to kind of start the conversation even, tell me about your, your journey into running, because it seems to me like you sort of jumped, like you jumped in deep quickly. I'm one of those guys, I've been running for years and I've been easing my way into these long distances and stuff. You, I feel like, you know, not as long, but much deeper early on. How long have you been running? When did you start, when did you start running? Well, I really kind of started picking up um, running as a, it wasn't so much focused as a fitness thing. It was focused more as like a mental therapy kind of emotional reset type thing for me. Um, and I picked that up in 2020 seriously. Um, so it's really only been a few years that I've spent a lot of time, you know, in the shoes, um, putting the miles in, putting the hours in and, and really just kind of starting to figure out how to not only enter this very challenging physical space of running where, um, you know, a lot of people who you talk to will say running is super challenging. I hate running. It's something that, you know, I'm not good at quote unquote. Um, and I think that's what was kind of attractive to me about it. So, so the physical part of it was, was attractive because it was a challenge, but then the mental componentry of, of running is kind of the big motivator for me. Um, of just being able to kind of get into a space where you have to be with yourself. You don't have a choice. You know, you have to be in this, in this space where you're talking to yourself, you're working through certain, um, mental, 
hurdles and all you have is to talk yourself through it. You know, I think there's a lot of value in that space um, to, to be found for anybody, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be running, you know, running, I think is, is, is kind of how I found that space. But I think that there's a lot to be said about um, endurance, anything, you know, whether it's cycling, whether it's swimming, anything that's kind of a, an, an endurance focused sport, I think has the, has the power to really unlock certain parts of your brain that you have trouble accessing in any other way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, an intentional departure from the comfort zone, exactly. you know, kind of lets you, lets you see what, you know, what you're, what you're really made of. Yeah. You said something to me today that I, I, and I've been excited to hear more about since we were on our run, which by the way, for anybody listening, Sean and I ran 10 miles this morning, 19 degree weather, uh, you know, blizzard or not blizzard, but snowstorm conditions outside. And, uh, the fact that you show up and are willing to do that, I think speaks so much, so much volume, you know, to your character and to who you really are, which is again, you know, contributing to my excitement to getting to kind of, you yeah. know, peel back some layers and, 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 you know, get to know your mindset a little bit more. But while we were running today, you mentioned, and I'll, I'll paraphrase cause I don't want to misquote you. You were telling me a story of a half marathon training run mm-hmm. and it was true blizzard conditions, like really blizzarding cold. In fact, there's a photo of you on Instagram with like a snow beard. Um, and you, basically told me that you have this ability when things get really, really difficult to smile and say, here we go. Yeah. I think that it might've been something a little more, you know, the, the words might not have been exactly that, a little more French, maybe. (laughs) let's effing go or something. But, but, uh, what I want to hear from you, cause I think just that, like even just the, if you unpack the mindset behind that, what you told me this morning, that when things get really hard, you are able to smile and shift your mindset and say, let's go like double down. This is what we're here for. The act of that in in and of itself, I think is really remarkable. Um, you know, so many times in life when people are faced with adversity or a hard time or a cold run or whatever it might be, you're kind of, I feel like you get these moments of it's a decision time now. Absolutely. Like how are we going to respond to the, to the moment that we're in, to the adversity that we're facing. Yep. And to hear you say, literally smile, let's go, um, resonates with me in such a powerful, powerful way. And what I want to know is where does that come from? Where do you think you've developed that ability to literally grin and bear it, you know, to, to smile and say, let's go? Because that's got to have come from, that's got to come from somewhere. There's got to be you know, I don't think that people are just born and can be running in a blizzard and smile and say, let's go. Yeah. I think that, um, that's, that's a deep question and it has a long answer. Um, the, we kind of briefly touched on this, but we intentionally didn't dive into this because this is the space that we wanted to dive into it in. Um, I, to keep a, you know, extremely long and somewhat painful story, somewhat short, um, I grew up in the mountains um, with my parents um, and my sister, who lives in Littleton near me. Her name is Nicole. Love you, Nicole. Um, she and I grew up relatively secluded up there in the mountains. It was just 
you know, my parents and the two of us. Um, we had no neighbors. It was just us. So, you know, the home time every night, there was no, you know, hopping on a bike and going down the street to hang out with a friend. You know, there was no, aside from sports where I got to stay after school to play sports like football or I got to go snowboard or I got to mountain bike or something like that. Um, home time was home time. And everybody's family has their own challenges. Um, nobody's family is perfect. Um, and we had, you know, our own set of challenges inside of our home that um, kind of, you know, laid the groundwork for um, figuring out how to approach, handle, and work through mental and emotional adversity. Um, not, not by choice. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody out there, realistically, any sane person is going to choose to go through um, really challenging familial times by choice, right? Nobody's going to make that choice consciously, but having gone through that as a child, um, and then growing up, it, it, it shapes you into this person that, that really has the power to choose one path or the other. And I think that people who go through a lot of trauma in their younger years have this switch in them that allows them to choose either one of two paths. And one of those paths would be I'm going to let my trauma define me and I'm going to let this trauma guide my life, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, you're making a choice, right? Whether you're flipping that switch or not, that choice is being made. Or you can flip that switch and say, I'm going to use my trauma as fuel. Mm. I'm going to use this as a reason to be better and to change myself. And in my younger adult years, I had grown up um, into, you know, this younger adult who I had my own vices. I wouldn't necessarily say I was an addict by any means, but, you know, I smoked a lot of marijuana. I kind of found comfort in the, in, in substances, um, to a point. Um, it didn't ruin my life or control my life, but I definitely crutched, right? I definitely relied on these things to help kind of bring the anxiety down, bring the, the mental level of stress down. Um, and then in 2019, things got really tough for my family. My, um, father got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, uh, stage four glioblastoma, um, and he was the caretaker for my mother at that point. My mother uh, was a lifelong smoker. Both of them were. Um, she had stage four COPD and emphysema, and she was on oxygen. Um, and she also had a, a relatively severe drinking problem. So um, just to clarify, 2019, now both parents have cancer? So just my father had cancer. Okay. Uh, my mother had COPD and emphysema, um, lung issues from lifelong smoking, and then uh, alcoholism as well. But to the point where it required a caretaker, Correct. which was your dad. Exactly, yes. And my mom was um, on the verge of, if not currently on disability at that point. It was kind of a weird matrix of, of things that were going on with both of them. Um, but my father was her caretaker, and so when he got sick, um, he went in essentially immediately to have the tumor resected from his brain. And when that tumor got resected, um, he became, he had hemiparesis, forgive me if I'm saying that cor uh, incorrectly or not, um, where he lost control of the right side of his body. Wow. And my father was a six foot three, 250 pound Marine, um, very large man, tough man to move around if he can't move around on his own. And so after he became sick, he was in and out of skilled nursing and assisted living facilities um, all while my mother was going through her own stuff and kind of slipping um, in her own respect with, you know, her problems. Um, so it was this difficult balance for me and my sister to figure out how to take care of both of them simultaneously. 
Um, and, and are you guys, are you and your sister living at home at the time? What's the, the living situation looking like right now? Had you guys, had you guys left? Yeah. So we had left. So I, um, I was living down in, um, Denver area with a girlfriend of mine. Um, and my sister was living down in Denver area with, um, by herself, but had a significant other and our parents still had lived up in the house near Netherland that we grew up in. Um, so it was about a 40 minute commute for us to get from where we were living up to the house to help them. Jeez. Um, my mother was the only one at the house still. And my father was kind of moving around different places in the Denver Metro area to different facilities to help him get through his rehab and, and things like that. Um, and also go to his cancer treatments and such. So there was a lot of kind of jumping around all while me and my sister were working our jobs and trying to maintain our own lives yeah. and still trying to get enough sleep and, and, you know, do all these things. Um, and it became very, you know, oppressive on our lives. You know, it's challenging for anybody. Um, doing them both at the same time was, you know, added an extra layer of, of difficulty to the situation. Um, and things ended up, you know, kind of digressing. My mom began, you know, slipping further down her, her path. And my, my father was, you know, I mean, it was, it was terminal brain cancer. There was, there was no cure. I mean, we could keep him alive for longer, you know, if he followed his cancer treatments and everything worked out well, you know, he could stay alive for a certain period of time, but it was, it was terminal. So, and you knew it was terminal from the get go. Yep. When he first got diagnosed, you know, the doctor said, you know, this is, this is terminal. Um, so, you know, we were all kind of dealing with that. The whole family's dealing with a lot of things here. Um, and they both kind of start going down just downhill, you know, simultaneously, but separately, they're they're both kind of going downhill. And, um, my mother ended up, uh, passing on, um, March 1st of 2020 which was a Sunday, I believe. And then my father was April 30th. Jeez. So he was less than two months after her. Um, and in that window of, you know, and, and, and the reason why I bring this up, you know, this is a challenging subject for, for me to talk about. And, and, you know, this is a challenging subject for our family, but the reason why I bring this up is because this event that happened in our family, this event was kind of the catalyst for me to really figure out how to, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? I mean, we were, our, our family's always been kind of separated. Um, we weren't a super close knit, big family. You know, I have family out in the East, you know, my, my mom's side of the family, I have her aunt and stuff that's out East. That was in Florida, Tennessee, New York area. And then I had, um, my brother who lives in California, which is my, my mother's son. And then I had my mother's family who was in Oregon, Washington area. So we were all kind of spread out, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time together and we weren't super close. So having our pocket, which was just my two parents and my sister, um, when we lost both of our parents, you know, that rips out a huge part of your life. Yeah. And that rips out, you know, for anybody, you know, anybody losing a parent or has lost a parent. That's but especially a, when you're like, I don't know, I'll call it small and mighty, you know, like the, it sounds like even though there wasn't a huge family, it was a close, small one. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, that was, that was our, that was our group. That was our family. Yeah. And, um, so when we lost both of them, that was really within 60 days. Yeah. Um, that was, that, that was, that was tough. Um, and everybody handles their own stuff differently. Um, and afterwards I had just kind of, you know, shut down. I lost a lot of color in my life. Um, I lost a lot of motivation to kind of do better and be better. Plus it's peak pandemic. It yeah. I mean, it had just started. these, these two tremendous losses and then world circumstances are, you know, requiring isolation and, 
you know, all of those other realities, by the way. Yeah. Which is, is worth noting because for most of the population, the pandemic is a big enough trauma as is. Right. You know, let alone the, the major losses right, be, right before. I mean, I can't imagine mourning and like going through, you know, going through losses. I lost my grandfather in April of 2020. And we Sorry were, to hear that. we were close. My, my oldest son is named after him. So we were, but nowhere near, you know, two parents and everything beforehand. But anyway, right. I just think it's worth, it, it's, it's, it's another layer of this, just like, you know, gut punch after gut punch yeah. for a little while there, because on top of all that, there's still, a, there's by the way, a global pandemic happening. Right. Um, so that was, you know, that was challenging and, and, and following the loss of them, um, and having, you know, kind of what felt like, you know, I mean, for a lot of people, for almost everybody, your parents are your safety net, you know, for a lot of people, you can kind of go to your parents if, you know, if you need help with something, you go to your parents and you're like, what do I do, you yeah. know, for advice and stuff? And, you know, I couldn't necessarily rely on my parents for any type of like financial security or anything like that. And I didn't want to, right? They, they, they raised, and I'm very thankful for this, they raised all of us in our family to be very independent in that aspect where like, you know, if you need something and you got to figure out something financially, you figure it out. You know, if you got to get a second job, if you got to do something, you know, like you, you, Pull your bootstraps up <laughs> yeah. and you figure it out. You know, um, if you need gas money, go figure it out. Um, so I'm very thankful for that. Um, but you know, as I grew older, and I think this is the case with everybody, as you as you kind of mature, you start to your your relationship with your parents changes, and you begin to develop more respect for your parents, and you begin to understand their perspective a little bit more, and you begin to value their input on situations more. And so, after having lost them, and now I've lost like in my mind, I'm like, well, now I have no, I have nobody to go to. I have nobody to go to. Like, who do I go to? You know, how do I, how do I ask questions? How do I become better? What do I, you know, if, in my relationships, in my professional career, like what, what's the right choice? You know, I don't have anything to bounce that off of anymore. So I kind of entered this space where I just was really lost for a long time. Um, following that, it was probably, it was probably six six months, six solid months afterwards where I was just lost and, and, and things were, things were dark and I was crutching really hard on, um, on marijuana specifically to just kind of numb the pain, you know? And that was, um, something that I had kind of used throughout my adult years to just numb the stuff that was kind of below surface level. Right. And then one day I remember I had kind of, I had this thought in my mind where I had, you know, recognized that I was on my way home from work and all I could think of was, man, I can't wait to get home from work so I can rely on that crutch again. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that, um, go ahead. And, and that thought in my mind turned something on where I was like, that's wrong. Mm. That's wrong. Like that, whether, you know, you think you can become addicted to, you know, marijuana or not, you know, psychologically for me, 100% you can yeah. physical addiction, maybe not, but psychological addiction still is very, very real for me on that. Um, and that, you know, it was literally that next day I woke up and I remember telling myself like, I'm done, I'm done. You know, I'm not missing anything. If I don't do this, I know what's going to happen. This isn't serving me. I don't feel better. This doesn't solve my problem. This just adds a layer above it that fogs the intensity of it. It doesn't actually remove the problem, right. or chip away at it. And so that was the day that I just stopped. And then that allowed my brain to start clearing up and I started to be able to figure out I have a choice now. Yeah. You know, those first, 
because I want to hear about that choice and like the clear, you know, as the brain cleared up and, and moving forward. Um, and, and a quick anecdote just to, I, cause I relate so much to that. So I, I told you when we were on our run this morning that I haven't had any alcohol since June 28th. Beautiful. And the reason Love that it. I, the reason that I know it was June 28th is I was visiting my parents and my birthday is June 29th Okay, and they live in Utah and, uh, we drove up there. The liquor store was closed by the time we got there. And I remember mm-hmm. feeling angry yeah. that, you know, I'm like, it's my birthday. I want a whiskey, whatever. And similar moment where I'm like, Ooh, I shouldn't feel like that. Yeah. Like that's probably not, that's probably not. I'm right. like really upset that the liquor store is closed. That's right. a bad sign. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so I very much relate to that moment because June 28th on, I, you know, I, I decided what the heck I'm going to not do it. Cause it concerned me that I got a little, that I was angry. Right. But I would love to hear, so talk, um, talking about, you know, the, the crutches and kind of using, you know, t- to using marijuana to suppress these, these emotions. Can you walk me through those first six months, you know, April, 2020 till, till this moment, walk me through the, the emotion that you're feeling. Like what's the, the, you, you kind of had talked about, you know, not feeling like you had anybody to go to anymore, mm-hmm. but are you, are you feeling confused? Were you feeling sorrow? Were you feeling, you know, what, what's the primary, if you had to des- describe that six month window emotion wise, what, what's, what, what are you feeling those, those few months after, after it all? The word that comes to mind when you ask that question would be empty. Mm. Um, you know, I, once again, I said, you know, we, we, we were kind of raised to be pretty independent. However, you know, those are, those are your parents, right? You know, those are the people who are closest to you. They have known you for every waking second of your life. Um, and that when, when they get ripped from you so quickly, it just felt like everything inside of me got taken from me. Um, empty. And yeah, this, this just like pit opened up inside of me and everything that I tried to feel fell into it and disappeared. Nothing that, you know, happened in my life had, I mentioned earlier, nothing had color anymore. Nothing, nothing inspired a feeling of excitement. Nothing inspired a feeling of happiness. I never had a genuine smile on my face. Every smile that I had when I was in public was a forced smile. And then whenever I got back behind closed doors, it was, it was that dark area to be in again. You know what I mean? And spending time in that really dark place mentally that was the catalyst that was the place where you get to choose after you can find that switch now you get to make a choice yeah and that i don't want to digress too far did that answer your question yeah okay um it's an interesting answer by the way empty but it makes so much sense yeah and you know once once i found that switch you know i had always kind of through my entire life, I'd always been an athlete in some facet, whether, whether it was playing football that we kind of briefly talked about on our run, whether it was playing football or snowboarding, I did gymnastics. Um, I mountain biked, I BMXed. Um, I did a lot of things to just kind of keep my body moving. And I remember always in my entire life, like when I was sweating, that feeling of sweating and like, like just dripping sweat was something that brought such a raw feeling of beauty and purpose to my life. And just such a true feeling of happiness that, um, after I found that switch, I decided maybe that's the direction I should go because that's the one thing that I know no matter what, if I go and I sweat my ass off, 
I can, I can turn that switch on, you know, I I can, I can figure out how to feel some, something again. Yeah. Right. Um, and so anything, anything, right. And that's, that's what I was looking for. Right. I was looking, I want to feel something, even the pain, even the pain. Yeah. You know, if it, if it sucks, I'm feeling something. Right. And that was the, that was the goal behind it. And so I, essentially how it started was, um, I lived in Roxborough at the time. Um, and right in the shopping center from Roxborough, it was like a quarter mile from my house. There's a snap fitness right there, a small little gym that's open 24 seven. Um, you just, you know, swipe your badge when you, when you want to go in. Um, I went in there and, you know, took a tour with, um, with the owner and she's like, well, you know, what kind of fitness stuff do you like to do? And I was like, well, I like cardio stuff. I'm trying to get back into it. And she's like, okay, well, we got these cardio machines, yada, yada. And I was like, okay, cool. And they had like TV set up in front of the treadmill and everything. And how it kind of started out for me was on the treadmill is where, is where it kind of started. Um, and I remember when I first started running, um, I, I couldn't go more than two tenths of a mile without my heart rate spiking probably. And I didn't have a heart rate monitor. I didn't have anything. I didn't even have a water bottle with me. You know, I was that new to it. I'm like, what do I need to do this? You know? Um, without my heart rate spiking to what I now know is probably 170 plus. Right. Um, and that was at like a 10 minute per mile pace. You know, I would do six miles an hour for two tenths of a mile and I have to walk like another three tenths of the half mile and then run another two tenths, walk another three tenths. And it was kind of that. And I remember starting with like a mile and it would take me like, you know, seven to 10 minutes. And then, you know, I do a little bit of lifting and then every, you know, I go every, I initially started out like twice a week. It was kind of like a, and this was when time frame on this. This, this was, was end of 2020. Okay. This was probably October time frame of 2020. Cool. Um, and it started out kind of slow. And then um, I started to develop some cardiovascular base, like some aerobic base kind of fitness for my cardiovascular system. And I remember finally getting to like half a mile. And I'm like, okay, cool. And seeing that progress was the first kind of motivator of like, okay, there's improvement here. You know, like... I feel improvement. That is something that makes me feel positive. And I'm like, that's the first positive feeling I have is that I'm improving at something like yeah. something in my life feels like it's moving now. Um, and so that was a string that I, I pulled a little bit and I just kind of kept pulling that string. Um, and you know, before I knew it, I was at a mile and then I was like, maybe I could do two miles. And then it was just this snowball effect where I'm like, maybe I can just keep going. Um, and yeah, it was something that, um, provided me a lot of solidarity in myself and a lot of, um, purpose in myself, a lot of reason, um, because it was the only thing that I could find at that time that really gave me anything. Yeah. And did it, which anecdote, you know, it's so funny to hear you talk about running half a mile or one mile when I met you 50 miles into a run, (laughs) you know, that I think you went on to run 82 or, you know, 80, 80 plus on that run. So it's, it's, it's remarkable to see the, you know, the progression over a few years, but you talk about cardiovascular fitness and exercise specifically towards the end of 2020 being the string that you've pulled on because you saw some movement in your life. Um, and it's, it's fun for me to see sitting across the table from you, you have this glow about you. Like there's this and I knew it instantly. I didn't, I've never heard your story for anybody listening. This is the first time I've heard about that. Um, but there was, there's something about you that instantly drew me to you. Cause you can tell there's depth Like you can tell that you've been through some stuff, but that you have this smile about you and this glow about you, which I think is so, it's just so 
powerful. It's, it's, uh, it's attractive, you know, like it, 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 you're the type of guy that I want to be around because there's these perspectives. So what I'm curious about is you kind of talked about how exercising and running kind of gave you a little bit of, I'll call it momentum, yep. you know, or like you're starting to see some movement in your life. Is that happening intentionally? Like, are you, are you seeking upward mobility? Are you seeking, you know, these things that you can feel good about? Or did you start running so you could feel something and it sort of, you know, like, I, I'm just kind of curious of how much of it was, holy cow, I've also now I've been running for a while because it's been working versus like thinking it through and saying, okay, I've got something now that I'm seeing, you know, that, that has some momentum and I'm going to lean into that. How much of it was intentional versus just keep doing it because you're finally feeling something. So there's, there's an interesting matrix there. That's a, that's a great question, by the way. Um, there's, there's an interesting matrix to that one because I also at this time when I had kind of started finding my fitness again, I had started seeing a counselor. I think it was about a month after I lost my parents. I started seeing a counselor cause I needed to talk to somebody, right? You know, I didn't, of course I was never really good at like therapy or talking or like emotional intelligence and communication or understanding what I'm feeling. Um, cause I didn't really feel as though I grew up in a household that was really good at teaching that stuff. Um, so a lot of the time it was very, you know, me kind of handling my own stuff growing up and then, you know, just moving on and being like, tomorrow's a new day. We'll just start over tomorrow. So really unpacking and understanding emotions as a child wasn't something that was, was that I was, that I was super strong with at all. Um, and then having lost them and starting counseling again, that really showed me how little emotional intelligence I had at the time and how I was not good for standing up for myself, how I was not good at um, understanding what I was feeling and being able to portray that correctly to people. Um, and then in this time frame, my counselor, uh, her, name's, her name is Dana. I've moved on to a different um, psychologist at this point, but um, my counselor's name was Dana. She's fantastic. I absolutely loved talking with her. She was super, super helpful. Um, but she kept leaning on this idea, I want you to go on meds. I want you to go on some type of SSRI or antidepressant because I truly think it would help. And that was, that was her perspective on it. Did you, sorry, but just for context, now that you have some clarity with hindsight, mm -hmm. um, did you have depressive or anxiety tendencies prior to the loss or is it I all did. new from, from the loss? So I looking did. back now, you're like, some of that's been around for yeah. Forever. And I think a lot of that stuff was stuff that I was covering up with the marijuana usage. Um, and having those habits kind of be present, you know, they're super deeply ingrained in my life because they've been part of my life, my entire life. You know, they've been just stuff that kind of got, you know, environmentally woven into the fabric of my everyday life. And it was such an integral part of just my personality and my, my psyche that these were things that really took a lot of work to start trying to undo. Yeah. Um, and but the thought of medication, the thought of medication made me really uneasy for the primary reason was, um, so I had dealt with, you know, issues before this with my, with my parents and just coping mechanisms. I, um, back when I was in high school, I struggled with eating disorders as well, which was also at least for a male in high school back then, you know, it's much more common nowadays for, for, for males to have some type of disordered eating. Um, but back in, you know, 2010 area, it wasn't as well 
understood or, right. or as commonly seen. Sort of stigmatized. Yeah. So um, I initially was was di- diagnosed with anorexia nervosa um, that ended up flip flopping after I graduated high school for a period of, for a couple of years into bulimia nervosa. Um, the anorexia nervosa was a coping mechanism um, that kind of came down to through its own therapy and kind of session um, that I had with that ended up coming down to a coping mechanism for my mother's drinking once again. Um, and the, I mean, that, that part of my life was really dark. That up to that point was the hardest thing that I had to go through. And that, um, was, I mean, I got pulled out of high school in my, the beginning of my senior year, I got pulled out of class and put in my, in my principal's office where they locked the door with the counselor, the principal and my anatomy teacher at the time, because they knew I wasn't eating at lunch. They could see that I wasn't eating. I went to a really small high school. There was 42 kids in my class, my graduating class. So like everybody knew everybody, all the teachers kind of know the kid and kind of know the kid's tendencies and stuff. So everybody's kind of watching everybody. Right. And so at lunch they would see I wasn't eating anything. And I, I used to get satisfaction of watching people eat food like that used to fill me up. And so, cause it was like, because of, uh, the mental win, because like you've, that made it harder to not eat or like, why did, why did watching people eat give you satisfaction? Do you think to this day, I don't necessarily understand the componentry behind that. Um, you know, my, my, um, therapist who helped me through my eating disorders at the eating disorder center at Denver. Um, she, you know, a lot of the time was like eating disorders don't make sense. Um, and they still don't really make sense to me, but it was, it was, a, a way for me to have control of my life. Yeah. Um, and it seems, and, and don't let me speculate, you know, more than I should, but it does seem like there are some parallels with mental fortitude and eating disorders, traumas, long distance running, yeah. you know, whatever it yep. might be of like, because some are more healthy than others, clearly. Right. Um, but it seems like, like choosing the, the, and, and again, don't, do not let me like speculate or, or, you know, assume anything, but it seems like it, from an eating disorder perspective, you have to be very uncomfortable. I would imagine by not eating, it's gotta be very hard, but it's a choice. So there's like some mental fortitude that goes on there or is it, it's really interesting how the brain works in that, in that space. Cause, um, I remember vividly through both the anorexia and bulimia nervosa, um, episodes, you know, they have different, different manifestations, but they kind of come back to the same area, right? Um, the food restriction with anorexia nervosa was calming Hmm. because it was me having control and making a choice to not eat. And when I would eat, stress and anxiety would come up and I felt like you were losing control. I felt like I was losing control. Um, so that was really interesting. And then on the bulimia nervosa side, it was, um, there was still that kind of control component where like, I'm restricting my food during the day. Um, but then, you know, I'd have the bulimic, the binging episodes of bulimia. Um, the binging episodes is where I would find the relief because then I would purge afterwards. So that binging and purging thing was kind of the stress relief afterwards, um, which was really interesting. And, you know, to kind of, um, come back because I feel like this, this frames it really well for people. Um, a lot of people have disordered eating and it is a spectrum, you know, the, the disordered eating can be with, you know, you can have just small restrictive habits or you can have, um, small purging episodes, you know, it can be smaller. It can be extremely intrusive, um, to people's life. It's intrusive, you know, period, but different people struggle on, on different levels. 
um, for, for me when to kind of circle back to the, when I got pulled into the principal's office and the door was locked with my principal and the counselor and my anatomy teacher, um, within that time span, why they pulled me in, they, they could see me not eating lunch, but it was within a, um, nine month, it was about a nine month window. Um, when this started, I used to be a little bit heavier set when I was, when I was a kid, I was a little bit heavier set. And when I was younger, I was a little fluffy is what I'd like probably how I'd describe it. I wouldn't necessarily say I was like fat kid, but like I was on the heavier set side. I was stocky. Um, and beginning of my junior year of high school, um, I showed up for football and my football coach, I remember looking at me and being like, nice, Sean, you put on some weight. And like that kind of hit me. I was like, oh damn. I didn't, I didn't, uh, mean to do that. Um, and then I remember weighing in and I was like two Oh three at my heaviest. Um, and I'm five foot seven. So two Oh three at five foot seven. I mean, that's, a, that's a little bit on the heavier set side in my, in my eyes. Um, and within nine months following that I had dropped down to 132 pounds. Um, and I was, I was, I was pretty thin. Yeah. Um, and so they, they were genuinely worried for my safety and my health. So they pulled me in and my principal said, Hey, we're going to give you one of two choices because we can see that you have an issue. And I hadn't even accepted I had an issue at this point. So this was a little bit, um, aggressive on the school's part on how to approach this, yeah. but I respect it. I respect <laughs> it. Right. Cause they were looking Great out for intentions. me. Yeah, yeah. They were looking out for me. Um, they said, you can either go into an inpatient program, we can freeze your grades where they're at, and you can graduate with what you have, which at that point, I, I was doing pretty well my senior year, because I was focusing a lot on, on school um, and not eating. Um, we can freeze them where you are, and you can graduate with what you have and go into inpatient. Uh, inpatient therapy is where you essentially get moved into a hospital. You live in the hospital. You're attending hours of therapy sessions a day. They're monitoring your caloric intake and your caloric output, and they're trying to forcefully kind of reframe your relationship with food. Um, or you can do an outpatient program, which is where you're going to therapy. And they said that, you know, you can bring us your receipts to verify that you're going. And I was like, I'm not going into inpatient. Like, that's just not happening. Um, so I had to, the school brought this, um, to attention with my parents and I ended up going to a center in Boulder, um, which was just down the mountain from, from Netherlands in the town that I grew up in, um, called La Luna. Um, and I was raised by a Marine. My father was a Marine. He's very black and white, very hardcore. My father was a gunsmith, um, and very manly mountain man. Right. Um, my mother was, um, very left wing and kind of hippie ish. Um, so I had kind of both ends of the spectrum with them, which I value a lot now as an adult. Um, but I went to this eating disorder center called La Luna in Boulder and all of the therapists there wanted to just kind of pat me on the back and tell me it's okay. And like, we're going to get through this and just be very, loving and caring and helpful about it. And that's not how I work. Like if I need to get something done, I need you to tell me what to do and do it. Like there is no pat me on the back. It's just give me direction and let's go. Um, so I went there, um, for a while, brought a few receipts to them, uh, or got a few receipts to them. And, um, my mother was a contractor at the time. We didn't have health insurance. So we were only able to do a few sessions and then, um, things kind of died down and, and I was kind of approaching the end of my senior year and everything kind of fell under the radar and we just kind of finished out senior year. Um, and then after that, went to UNC of Greeley for a short period of time, um, ended up, you know, having kind of a mental break there two or three weeks into it and just was like, you know what, I'm out. Like I can't, I can't handle this. Moved home, um, got a job doing some gymnastics stuff, um, and that's when everything kind of flipped over to the bulimia nervosa side. And it was just really, it was a really dark time for me mentally. And that's where I'll touch on how you're kind of drawing parallels between like the endurance running and like the eating disorders and trauma is 
that was me for really the first time in my life spending a lot of time in that dark place and nobody can help you. Nobody is in that space with you. Yeah. You are the only one in your own mind. You can talk to people about it and people can try and give you advice. People can, you know, your therapist can tell you this is what you need to do, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But they're not there. They're not in there. You know, they don't listen to you talk to yourself. Right. You know, and you have this kind of split of like your subconscious mind and your conscious mind kind of clashing yep. all the time. Um, and that was the first thing that I really had some legitimate... Um, tribulation to get through. Um, that was, that was my first true mental challenge in my life. Um, and as of January 9th, um, this coming January 9th, I will be 11 years episode free. It's amazing. Which is pretty cool. Um, so it's been that, that, that was a challenge. So that was kind of the first thing that led me to, um, the mental adversity and being in that, you know, Courtney DeWalter calls it the pain gate. Yeah. Right. She calls it this, this, this place that, you know, you're in your own mind. And, um, I equate a lot of these, you know, trauma and difficult things that I did in my life to that place. Right. And I don't, I don't know, maybe that, this is the first time I'm truly unpacking this, but maybe there is, you know, why I like endurance running is because I've spent time in that place. And yeah. there is a level of comfort to being there now after having, spent the time there and figuring out how to get out of it. Right. You know, there is this familiarity to that space where I'm just like, I've been here before. I know how to be here. In fact, I've been worse. Yeah. Which might explain why you're so darn good at it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and that's where, so, you know, we, we, we touched on it a little bit on our, our run today too, but I've, I've been struggling with this dilemma between nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the whole concept of this podcast is conversations with people that inspire me. And there's almost this like stoicism about people with depth, mm -hmm. you know, people that have a story to tell that have weathered it well and have come out the other side, you know, with this new perspective. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to force you to, you know, try to unpack that for yeah, me. Cause sure. Cause the guy sitting in front of me right now is bright and it has a genuine smile and like there's so much there's so much beauty to it but what i've been trying to figure out and maybe you've got some insight as it relates to your own story is this idea of nature versus nurture so like you know i think about your story for example we've got years worth of disordered eating which is you know very very difficult in and of itself then we've got the loss of both parents indescribably difficult. I don't even know how to, I can't even believe you're talking about it. That, you know, is that difficult pandemic, other normal life stuff that I'm sure we haven't even touched on, which I'm of which I'm sure there is, you know, thousands of, there's plenty. Yeah. Yep. Of, of these other things that have gone on along the way. Mm -hmm. Yet here we are incredibly optimistic, incredibly insightful. You've got this ability to connect with people on a real level and there's this amazing level of depth and complexity to you. So the question is, is that who you are or is that who you became, you know, through these things? And, and, and I know that that's like an impossible question to answer, but you know, I, there, cause I think a lot of times people will use endurance sports or these intentional departures from the comfort zone as a way of preparing themselves for 
the eventual adversity that's going to come. You know, it's like do the hard thing now so that when the real hard thing comes, you're ready for it. Right. I almost feel like you've got the opposite, you know, timeline. And I don't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm grinning, but I don't mean it lightly. But that the amount of adversity that you've been through is tremendous. I mean, tremendous by any standard. You know, somebody to, to weather those storms. It would be so easy to come out of all that bitter and angry. I mean, you know, nobody would blame you in the world if you were, you know, an alcoholic, grumpy, mad at the world. And of course you would be. You know, you look right. back and it's like, of course. Yet somehow there's this, like you, you, you've already made hugely positive impacts on my life and I've barely known you. Glad to you hear know, it. these, the, the trajectory that you've chosen to take is remarkable. And I would love to hear, I would love to hear, you know, how you got there. Like whether it's nature, nature versus nurture or these decision points or, you know, aha moments of clarity or what, or dumb luck, you know, I don't, yeah. but how in the world do we go? Does the guy sitting in front of me right now, how do we end up there with these, you know, with this, with this tremendous amount of adversity to get there? So I think to touch on the nature versus nurture component of that conversation, I think that adversity is for me now looking back, I think an adversity in everybody's life is a extremely, extremely valuable experience for everybody. Everybody's level of adversity is going to be different. You know, some people get, you know, born into families that are, are much more that function on a much more healthy level. I feel like than maybe my family did. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to frame my family as this, you know, unhealthy family that had all these problems and stuff because, you know, my parents were married my whole life, which I'm thankful for. Um, they always kept a roof over our head. We were always fed. You know, I always was, you know, had somewhere to go and, you know, had my own safe space in my room. And I had, you know, a lot of these things that a lot of people out there don't have. Right. Um, so I, I am very thankful for, for that part of my life. Um, but my adversity that I went through, it, it provides what I understand to be an infrastructure for your emotional self and well-being that widens your platform to build on. So this adversity that you go through creates this large foundation of yourself where you have now this perspective of, okay, X experience was tremendously difficult for me emotionally or, you know, psychologically or physically, whatever it may be, X was very difficult. And then you have on the other end of that spectrum, you have your really positive experiences. You know, somebody in your family gets married and you're at their wedding and it's super awesome to watch these people who are madly in love get married and, and have this, you know, new chapter of their life open up, or, you know, you get a new pet and you fall in love with this dog that you have. And now you have this really positive experience and this positive energy around you where you're like, man, I love this. You know what I mean? So that adversity, super hard experience, and then super positive experiences that you have now provide this very wide spectrum of life experience for you that widens your foundation that you get to build on, right? The less adversity you have, the smaller that foundation becomes, as does the inverse, where if you have 
a lot of adversity, but you have no positive, your foundation is also small, but that foundation is now weak, mm -hmm. right? And it's, I think that foundation becomes weak on either side of that spectrum, right? Either adversity only or positive experience only, both of those foundations are weak because you're trying to build on something that isn't complete, right? So the nature versus nurture thing, I think the nature component of it, of the environment that you're growing up in and the adversity that you go through, I think provides the groundwork, right? Now, the nurture part of that, I think, is where, you know, you're, you, you get to play a role in your own growth and the people around you get to play a role in how they contribute to your growth as well. Um, the, the growth beyond that foundation, to me, comes from partly choices, partly experiences, a lot of it all of it, not all of, not a lot of it, all of it comes from intention. Mm. Um, and all of that comes from the intent to grow and to become better. Um, there's things that will just kind of, you know, fall into place over your life as life continues, you know, things just kind of, you know, life happens, um, around you. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's important to, to bring up here is that, you know, life doesn't happen to you. Life will happen for you, but you need to make that decision, right? So that foundation for me has been, I feel very lucky um, having had gone through adversity and also having had positive experiences in my life to feel as though what I perceive to be a relatively large foundation to build upon. Um, everything that was built on that foundation crumbled when I lost my parents. Um, there was holes in that foundation from certain areas of my life that weren't filled in properly when I was younger. And then the eating disorder stuff definitely poked some holes in the structure as I began to build it. Right. Um, so when I lost my parents and everything got ripped out, I started to understand through fitness and running that I get to rebuild. Now I come to a point where my foundation still exists, but now I can start forming and, and, and creating this structure of my life where I get to fill in all of those holes that I didn't fill in earlier. Mm. I get to recreate this structure of my life however I want to create it. And that was kind of the point of no return for me. Yeah. Where I got to I got to choose where I'm going to focus on building this structure in a manner where I am showing intent on why each piece gets to be in my life and understand why each piece is structured the way that it is and why I do what I do. Um, and having that intention behind all of that to create this structure, and I, I know I'm talking about this super abstractly, but it's how my mind kind of makes sense of all this. Um, having the intention behind all of those components to create this structure of your life is the way that you get to understand how to build a life that works for you. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like after traumatic events and a lot of tribulation and a lot of adversity in people's lives, there's a good amount of people and, you know, albeit, I think these are really good people, but I think that there's a lot of people out there who, who fold and succumb to that pain. They fold and they, they, they fall victim to those experiences, you know, and a lot of people, run from them and choose substance. A lot of people run from them and choose poor life decisions and they try and find 
solace and completion in external things in their life, um, whether that's substance or people or running from places or, you know, whatever it may be, you know, yeah. there's millions of different ways people cope with stuff. But for me, I am very thankful through counseling and therapy to recognize that everything I need to do to create the life that I want is in me. Mm. It's in there. Right. It's almost like with your analogy, it works for me because I, I visualize it's almost like this stripped down, you know, like I, I, you know, you, you mentioned that the loss of your parents showed holes in that foundation or whatever, but I would say that it's almost like, well, geez, a big enough earthquake is going to bring down any building, right? you know, and it's almost then you have this moment where you had the perspective to say, well, all that's left is the foundation. Now we rebuild. Yep. And now we think about how, you know, how we can rebuild and what pieces to put in place, like you said, and, you know, making it, making it what it is, which is insanely powerful. Like the, the fact that you had the resiliency, you know, to have the building fall multiple times, you know, down to just, I'm a volunteer firefighter and we often, you know, down to the foundation, like the whole thing burned down, down to the foundation. Mm -hmm. um, but to look at that and, and, and I think that speaks to the perspective that you bring to life because it's something I've picked up on you from the short time I've known you. So many people would look at that, you know, the building that's burned, burned down to the foundation and think it's been burned down to the foundation. It's, it's over. A, yeah. Right. Where you look at it and see, well, the foundation's there. Let's build it. And, and thank goodness you almost have like this gratitude perspective of the, you know, you mentioned the wide swings of adversity and, and positivity, good things that have happened in your life, which has created this, this large foundation, as you put it, which makes so much sense, but I still haven't figured out how, how you know, when you look at that and I, and I know it hasn't hope and know it didn't happen overnight. Like I don't want to imply that, you know, you lose your parents and you're like, well, I can rebuild. Like right. obviously a huge process right. that goes in there. But, you know, you've kind of talked about how, and, and it's important, it's worth us mentioning everybody. And that's one of the, one of the coolest things about podcasting for me has been because I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally speaking to high performers that inspire me. And what I'm finding is every single one of them has gone through a ton of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, my dad has a quote that I love and he says, I've never met a strong person with an easy past, you know, like, absolutely. Wow. But I think what's unique about that and what I'm finding is, is that every single person has a story to tell. Every one of those stories is riddled with adversity. Yeah. Whether it's ex extreme as yours or not, you know, it doesn't matter, but to them, everybody has had extremely adverse and, and, you know, yeah. ups and downs in their lives. Yeah. Some people see the foundation as an opportunity to rebuild. Other people see it as that it burned to the ground and you know, there's, there's nothing left in your, as it relates to your journey, do you find looking back that you've had that, that like decision moments, you know, where you were like, okay, because I think back to even when you were telling me about, you know, how you felt like you had nobody, you know, after your, your parents had, and I relate to that so much. It's funny, the older and more successful I'm getting, the more I call my dad, yeah. <laughs> Which, yep. you know, you wouldn't think, you know, 
back when I knew it all, so to speak. But, um, you know, I'm just envisioning this journey of these incredibly intense adversity moments, feelings of not having anybody, you know, whatever. Walk me through the mindset, though, of, of being able to see it as a foundation, you know, it, do you find that some of that has been happenstance and, and that, you know, you look back and there's just enough blessings of those positives that have happened or, you know, at what level of it do you feel like, was there a moment when you took control and were like, all right, I'm not going to let this, I'm not going to be the guy that's now an alcoholic, angry at the world. I'm going to be the guy that inspires people and runs ultra marathons. You, you know, I, I still need to figure out those paths diverge right? and, and there's probably multiple moments when they could diverge right? and you've chosen one. It seems like at least that it's been a, a choice. It has. Um, there was, there was a moment for me and that was, you know, I mentioned it earlier when I, you know, woke up that one morning and I was like, you know what? I don't need to, I don't need to use marijuana anymore because this isn't something that is serving me. Um, and I think, the true componentry deep down that allows people to make that decision to choose that path of their life, whether they're going to go down that path and and let their trauma eat them, or they're going to choose the path where they're going to let their trauma fuel them. Um, I think that I like that analogy, by the way. Yeah. I think that that, um, that decision, that moment, um, happens when you understand that, your mind is something that yes, you've spent your whole life with it, but you are not a master of it. And your mind has a power that is deeper and your subconscious has a power that is deeper than your conscious mind can control. However, your conscious mind can influence your subconscious mind. Mm. You just have to understand what choices need to be made in your conscious realm that will influence the subconscious, right? And I think that, at least for me and my understanding of it, that's where all of this comes down to is, is it's all in your head and it's all how you internalize it and it's all how you talk to yourself. It's all how your subconscious um, reinforces those decisions that your conscious mind makes and how your conscious mind can make, it's almost like tricking yourself into believing something for a certain period of time, you know what I mean? Like you, you kind of have to play this game with yourself. Right. And I've always felt like there has been a clear split in my mind between my subconscious mind and my conscious mind. And in through my therapy and through this trauma and through the, the, the life experience that I've gained, especially over the last few years, I can see those two things and how the subconscious and the conscious mind and how they interact with each other, I can see that very clearly. And I can identify certain things in my life now where I'm like, okay, I'm feeling X, but why? And I can use my conscious mind to try and unpack that. And those two things now work together really well. And I think that's where you'll find the strength that you need to flip that switch in the the decision moment is really truly understanding that there is a level of mental fortitude that comes from recognizing that you don't have control over your subconscious mind. You can't control him. You can influence him, you know, or her, you know, for whoever's listening, you can influence that subconscious mind 
in very powerful ways, but you have to understand how your mind works and everybody's mind works differently. Yeah. And that's where the work starts, right? That's where the work of recognizing, okay, cool, sweet. I can't control my subconscious mind. And that's where people throw their hands up and they're like, man, it's over. It's over. Like, I this can't, is just I, who I am. This is just who I am. You know, this is who I've always been. This is who I am. Um, and people just fall down that path. That's where it begins to eat you, right? Where it begins to fuel you is where you recognize that I may not have control over it, but I can influence it. And I believe that if I influence it for long enough, it will change. Yeah. Um, that's, that's where I think that how comes in, right? And it all, it all starts from inside your mind. And I think that that decision for me at least was easier made because I had been through these experiences with my eating disorders and then with my parents and stuff where I get put into this mentally dark, you know, solitary confinement essentially is what it feels like inside of your own mind where you don't have a choice, you know, and a lot of people who go through adversity, um, or like really, really deep, really challenging adversity. Um, and I think everybody does definitely at some point in their life, but when they get into that space, you recognize that you don't really have a choice but to sit there right? Like you have to be in this space. You can't get out of it. Some people scream and scratch and claw metaphorically to get out of it and use substances to yeah. dumb down the pain and numb it all out. But then the second the substance is gone, it comes right back and it's waving you in the face. You know what I mean? It's right there. So for me, having been through these experiences, thankfully we're we're, you know, I was young enough in my first one where I didn't really have access to hard substances. There was no real access to it. So that wasn't a choice no for choice me, but to sit in it, thank goodness. Right. Because I feel like, you know, a lot of really good, really strong people fall victim to that because it is an easy way out, you know? Um, and having to sit with that and learn how to be comfortable sitting on that couch next to your demon and talk to him and be okay with him there and recognize how to, because he's never going to go away. Right. And I've, I've, I've explained this. Um, I used to smoke cigarettes too, cause my parents were smokers. So I had a nicotine problem at some point, but I've, I've quit smoking as well. And it's been seven years now since I've smoked, which has been pretty good. Um, but how I, I've described this with nicotine with people who I've, I've tried to talk to about smoking as well. And now that I'm like having this conversation, I'm equating this analogy to this, what we're talking about right now, but the nicotine addiction for me too, never really went away right? Like that, that, that addiction to nicotine, nicotine is a horrible substance and I hate it, but it was something that controlled my life on a very real level. You know, every day it influenced how I went through my day because I had to build in these breaks to get my nicotine and it, and it impacts your day every day. Um, when I first stopped nicotine, it felt like I was carrying a gorilla on my back. You know, every day it felt like this really hard push to, not use nicotine. As time went on, the backpack gets smaller, the gorilla gets smaller. And now today it feels like there's a lizard that follows me around. It's just a little lizard that follows me around. I know he's there, but he doesn't do anything to me anymore. Right. You know, I just like, I'll see him every now and again and be like, okay, that's cool. That's my nicotine lizard. Right. And now that we're having this conversation, I kind of equate, um, those demons to that same type of thing. You know, that, that demon that you're struggling with, whatever it may be right now, that's really tough is a big demon who's weighing down on you real hard. But as you spend time with him and as you come to terms with him and recognize his present, his or her presence in your life, um, 
is there for a reason, whether you like that reason or not, it is providing you with something that you can see value in. Yeah, and it's almost like if you go down the path with suppression or, you know, substances or, or whatever it might be, you are inhibiting your ability to get to know the demon. Exactly. And it's like, it's going to be there for Like you're not going to let yourself get through it mm-hmm. and you're almost prolonging, yeah. you know, the issue. I think there's two analogies that come to mind for that. One is we were talking today about that blizzard run mm-hmm. you were on and you know, it's blizzarding. You're running a, a half marathon. You want to walk. But if you walk, you're going to be in it longer. Yep. So it's like, might as well just keep running. And, I, and I'm sure you've heard the differences between cows and bison when a storm's coming. Have you heard, have you uh, heard this? I think, I think so. It's pretty interesting how factual it is. Who knows? But the, the analogy of it's pretty powerful. Cattle, when a storm is coming, fear the storm and turn and run away from the storm. What ends up happening is that the storm catches them and they run with it then. So they're in the storm much longer. Okay. In an attempt to escape it, they're in it longer as the storm's moving with them. Yep. Bison, on the other hand, see a storm coming, run straight to it and through it. And so the time in the storm is significantly shorter because they're running, you know, the opposite direction and getting through it much scarier approach. Right. You know, right. Storms coming, turn and face it head on and and run at it versus, Mm -hmm. you know, running away from it. Mm -hmm. But I think powerful analogies to what you're talking about, like being willing and choosing to sit with the trauma Mm -hmm. and to sit with the adversity and realize that there's, there's beauty in it really, you know, with the, if you can take a, a bigger perspective Right. You know, step a far enough step back to see, you know, that this whole thing, I love that of like, and almost thinking of it as a physical thing, yeah. like you have to sit with, mm-hmm. makes it feel a little more doable to yeah. me yeah. than like, you know, trauma. Like right. Calling it trauma abstract, un- <laughs> intangible thing that <laughs> right. just like, encompasses your life. Sit with it. I mean, I've noticed it since I stopped drinking. You know, I, I joke with my wife all the time, but I've got to feel stuff now. And yeah. I, I've noticed that, like, you know, I'm insecure sometimes and I'm sensitive and, you know, all of these these different things about me. I uh, was talking to, uh, I had a psychologist on the show, Dr. Doug Miller, and he was using an analogy of life and you kind of have two choices. You can ride the merry-go-round mm-hmm. and it's going to be a merry-go-round mm-hmm. and it's consistent, it's safe, it's a merry-go-round. Or you can ride the roller coaster of life, which is up and down and sideways and upside down and turns and fast and slow. And, you know, these amazing, this incredibly complex journey. And I think about how you've framed both the positive and the negative in your life. And you've talked about how if you have too much just negative or too much just positive, you end up with an unstable foundation. It, It doesn't have the depth. But if you have the traumas and the positive and I'll add the ability to feel both yep you end up with this wide foundation which is a lot like riding a roller co- you know you've got the ups you've got the downs we were talking about it while we were running today I've been going down this path of a desire to live a rich life 
Yeah. Like I want to feel it all, the mm-hmm. good and the bad. I want to feel it all. I want to live it. I want to feel alive. It's why I need new friends because you made me sign up for an, you know, a 50K, Arch is 50K, but, um, the, the, uh, but it contributes to that idea of like, it, it goes against our nature, I think, sometimes so much to face the traumas. Yeah. And like just deal with them. Mm-hmm. And what you don't understand is that by trying to not face them, you're prolonging the negative impact Correct. of the trauma. So it almost seems like for you, you talked about, you know, leaning into marijuana, which, you know, not good or bad, like whatever. But um, the fact that it was kind of suppressing it, but not making it go away. Yeah. And then you had the decision of like, well, so was that kind of like you're realizing you got to face it? Yeah, that was that was kind of the point where it's like, look, this isn't this isn't fixing anything. You know, this isn't repairing anything. This isn't giving me any tools to be able to handle this any better. I don't feel better when I wake up the next day. I don't really feel better when I'm, you know, under the influence of marijuana. I don't I don't it doesn't really make an improvement. Um just kind of muted things. It's just muted, you know, and then when when you know the mute button is off we're back to literally where i was before i pressed the mute button and so it's this like baseline almost below baseline but numb feeling back to baseline below baseline and it was just kind of that you know very um very low wavelength existence is what it felt like merry-go-round yeah merry-go-round um and i just didn't want to be there anymore do you think over it. do you think that's why you've been so drawn to ultra running because of the rawness of it. Like the, the fact that you can't escape it, you know, the pain, like you've, you've got to feel it, the good and the bad of it. Like, do you think that some of this has, has related to why, you know, why, why you have the hobbies that you have too? I think so. Um, and I think that there's a parallel to be drawn with, you know, talking about accepting the pain of it and, and, you know, embracing the pain part of it, circling back to when you said, and I do say this, you know, I'm not going to use the French term of it, but whenever I'm in, you know, the really difficult part of the and run, you can say it by the way, <laughs> um, whenever I'm in a really difficult part of the run or I'm climbing an uphill and you know, I'm really feeling it, I'm feeling the burn, my heart rate's high. I'm in a tough spot or maybe a part of my body's hurting that, you know, I'm starting to work out some weakness in whether it was, you know, earlier it was hip flexors at the beginning of the year. And then I had some IT band stuff and then I had some ankle stuff and like everything I've kind of worked through. And I feel like that is weakness leaving the body. You know, you will, um, I'll toss this in there. We can touch on this later, but you will not rise to the level of your expectations. You will fall to the level of your training. And whenever I start falling to the level of that training and I feel that low point in a run, I always, I force myself to smile and I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do it. This is why we're here. You know, and I'll tell myself like, this is, this, this is the place you want to be. You know, this is where the work is. This is why we're here. This is why we're here. This is where the work is done. The fun part of the run is fun and great and laughs and smiles and it's great. But like, you don't get better there. You know, you don't get better in the part of the run where you're like, man, it's a beautiful day outside. I'm breathing light. It's a easy terrain. You know, you get better in the, in the point when you're like, I don't know how much more gas I got. That's where you get better. And I think that's where I've kind of taught myself to embrace the challenge of it as the positive fun part of the run. And that's where also I'll circle back to kind of like tricking your subconscious and learning how to work with your conscious subconscious mind. That's part of that. That's part of that. Like, Oh, I know my subconscious. If I tell myself, gosh, this sucks. I 
hate this. This is the worst part of the run. If I tell myself that my subconscious believes it and my subconscious will take that in and it will manifest back to my conscious mind. Yep. If you make that conscious decision of being like, you know what? This is awesome. This is why we're here. I love this. Your subconscious mind believes that your subconscious mind's like, actually we do like this. And then that feeds back into your conscious life. And that's where the positivity cycle starts. Right. And that positivity cycle starts. And once it starts, it builds momentum. Yeah. And it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And I've gotten to this point in my life where, you know, I, I personally found it through fitness. I know a lot of other people in the, you know, can find it through other avenues, whether it's art, whether it's running a business, whether it's a million other things. Right. But for me, it was through fitness where I found this kind of like purpose in my life where I like, I feel like I can spread a positive impact. I feel like I can spread inspiration and I feel like I can help the people around me be better. And that's why I want to be here is I want the people around me who are trying to become better to be better. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons why, you know, at Palmer, when I was running around and like, I'd catch people, I'd be like, nice job. You know, even if I'm lapping you, I'm saying nice job. Cause you're out here and you're getting it done, you know? And, um, every time, I'm out there and I'm trying to inspire these people. That's what provides fulfillment in my life is, is watching these people who want to get better, be better. And what I was telling, I can't remember who it was. It was somebody at Palmer Lake. Um, but it was a super cool conversation I was having with them. And you know, we, this is something I wanted to touch on, but I didn't talk about it on our run because I didn't want to ruin it. Um, where I want to be out there and I want to inspire people to be better. I want to put a smile on my face. And I want to show people that this is fun and this is where you want to be. And this is how you want to, you know, live your life. Um, but also with me, like I'm a competitive person and I've always been a competitive person kind of my whole life. But the cool part about ultra running and just running period for me, at least, you know, there's, there's competitive portions of running in the slower distances, you know, 5k, 10k, half marathon, marathon, um, you know, those are all pretty competitive distances for people. But once you move into the ultra category, a lot of people are kind of like, it's you against yourself. Yeah. You know, you're not really, a lot of people aren't really out there racing ever, everybody else. They're like, how fast can I do this? You know? And with me, I want to spread that positivity and I want to be, you know, that kind of beam of light for people that, that inspires them to be better and stay with it. And for me, you can't compete with me because I want you to win too. Love it. You can't like, there is no competition with me. Like if you're beating me or you got more miles than me, right on dude. Nice job. Keep going. You know, if I'm beating you, come on, man, let's go. We got this, you know, and it's all about progress. It's all yeah. about forward, you know, because anything backward in my life right now, I'm not interested in anything that's back there and it's behind me. Cool. It's behind me. It's not in my focus view, you know? Um, Jelly Roll, um, the musician I heard um, when he accepted his award made a really cool statement of the windshield is bigger than the rear view for a reason, you know? And I think I resonate with that a lot of eyes forward, what's next, let's keep moving. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just, you know, having this new relationship with ultra running where it's not a super competitive thing for me. It's like a labor of love. It's a labor of passion and it's really cool to watch other people out there, you know, in that dark spot. And if I catch up to you and you're in that dark spot, I'm going to run with you for a minute. I'm going to be like, what's up, man? I have, well, and that's why you made such an impact on me at Palmer. And we share that mindset of like, I mean, even this morning, you know, it was 19 degrees out and snowing and there was a few people running, but everybody that we saw running, you know, we gave them a thumbs up, told them good job, like way to be out here. Yeah. I have a video on my phone 
Um, I did an hourly check-in on my Instagram story when I was running Palmer. Yeah. So every hour I would check in and there was one like mile, I think 11 hours in to the run. I'm in mm-hmm. mile 50 mm-hmm. and I'm filming it and uh, I'm like, here we are 11 hours, mile 50. And you hear in the background, somebody go like, you're crushing it or whatever. And so I go, yeah, battle buddies with me and it's you next to me running. Nice. And, uh, you know, what a, a powerful example of the, that reality that like you, you want everyone to win too, which I think was so cool. I mean, you, you cheered for me in a huge way, even when I was, you know, packing up and going, you gave me a hug as I was leaving. I'm like that. I, I, you left such an impact on me that I sought you out. Like I, I was trying to figure out how to get back in touch with you, like looking at photos and finding the bib number. And I mean, yeah. I put an effort to, to find you because that, so that cool. positivity was infectious. And that's coming from a guy who gets told that his positivity is infectious, you know? So it was just a cool, a cool moment. But you talked about, um, the, the mindset behind it. And like, basically what I took from what you were just saying is, is this idea that, you know, you talk about our subconscious and our conscious mind and things like that. This idea that we truly can influence our reality based on the way we perceive it. Like genuinely what we, our, our perceptions become our realities and what we choose to focus on is magnified and like choosing to focus on the fact that this is where we get better instead of the fact that this is when it hurts or, you know, just these little subtle reframing of the mindset when Mm. adversity strikes and things like that is so powerful. My question is, Considering the the traumas that you've been through, the incredible, I'll call it, life trajectory that you've had now in terms of how you've taken the traumas and the, the, the paths that you've chosen to take and things like that, do you see that mindset, you know, because we're talking about it in pretty big ways, right? the loss of parents, disordered eating, running 80 miles or more, you know, I mean, we're talking about it in these extremes. Have you seen that the ability to have that clarity of mind and that mindset relates in other aspects of your life? And if so, how and where, you know, give me some examples of if that's the case, what that looks like. Yeah. I think that, you know, that I was able to find that mindset through health and fitness and running. Um, but that, you know, feedback loop of the positive encouragement to your subconscious that feeds your conscious mind, that feedback loop stays with you outside of that. It, 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 it penetrates every facet of your life, every single experience you have in your life, it, it, it penetrates and it influences. And every time it influences that I'll equate it to like a savings account or a piggy bank. You know, you don't build a giant savings account by making one huge deposit right away. You know, it's small deposits again and again and again and again. And it's consistency with that, that builds this large account. And it's the same thing with your life and your experiences in this positivity feedback loop. That's the little deposits every time. And every day when you wake up, you know, you get to make these, you, you recognize that you get to make these deposits throughout your day. Um, and whether that's professionally, um, with your career, whether that's in your personal endeavors, whether that's in your social settings and trying to become better as, you know, a a person in your group, um, or that's, you know, you trying to better yourself on a, on a physical level, on a fitness level, whatever it may be, you know, these, this, this positive feedback loop impacts 
And I think that it's been hugely influential for me to be able to understand um, the relationship between positivity and the impact on your life because it is really easy for you know people to have and you know it's happened to me at points in my life you know I'm not saying that this is something that never happened to me but the victim mentality where you know you get into this mindset where like life is happening to you oh this happened to me and it ruined my day you know I remember that there was a there was a large um period of my life where this is the first thought that comes to mind where like I'm driving around and if somebody cuts me off in traffic it would make me mad for hours like I would be mad. It would, I'd be mad for half the day because this dude in traffic cut me off and then flipped me off and it's my fault now, you know? And then that happened to me and that took that positivity from me, mm. you know, that, that takes that and I allow that power to be held in other people to take that from me. And there was, um, a point, <laughs> there was a relatively, um, intense experience that I had that, that, that showed me. I don't have to give that power to people. I can maintain that power. I get to wake up every day and I get to choose if today is a good day or not. And ever since that day happened, I've had very few bad days because every day is a good day. Just because you're having a tough day at work, just because you didn't have the greatest workout, just because you got into an argument with your partner, those experiences don't get to take away the good day because recognizing the positivity and recognizing the gratitude mindset and being grateful for what you do have rather than living in the area of what you don't changes how you interact with the world around you. And it changes how you perceive the space that you live in. It really does. It's so interesting. The episode that was released last week, Susie Rhodes is on it. She was paralyzed in a car accident and been in a wheelchair and during our conversation, she said it almost verbatim what you just said, which is this idea that there aren't bad days because there's something good within every day. Yeah. There are hard days. Mm-hmm. There are challenging days. There are long days. Um, but reframing like the definition of a bad day. Did you have a bad day or did you have a bad moment? Right. Did you have a bad part of your day? Yeah. You know, because there's all these... There's good, th- and it, I, th- yeah. I think that's incredibly fascinating that you guys had, like it was almost verbatim what she said, that's you know, cool. last week. So I um, haven't watched that one yet, but she uh, she was in the accident on Black Bear. Correct? Yeah, yep. And it's it's worth listening to. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's on my list. Story. It's on my list. Um, so I'm curious because you kind of talk about this idea of a gratitude mindset trickling into the rest of your life and these positive feedback loops and creating momentum and things like that. You also mentioned that the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror for a reason. What I want to know is where are you headed? What's next? What's, what's ahead? What, what are you seeing through, through the windshield right now? Wow. That's a big question. Um, so I have, um, already kind of set my sights on the big goal for 2024. Um, 2023 um, was Palmer Lake, which was, you know, for everybody listening, I don't want you to think that I'm like some super experienced ultra runner because I am not by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Palmer was my first sanctioned ultra marathon event. And as you said earlier, I kind of dived just head first into things. You know, there's no, I'm not, I've never been a person who's one foot in, one foot out, like, oh, I'm going to see how this is. It's like, no, if I'm doing it, we're going. All in. We're yeah. going. Yeah. Um, so 24 hours of Palmer was my first, um, 
sanctioned ultramarathon event that um, my buddy Al, who I mentioned to you earlier, um, was the one who kind of inspired me to do it because he had run, you know, he ran a couple of the Moab races and then he ran Palmer a couple of years. And I had seen when I was getting into running, I had seen him out there do, like doing these ultra marathons. And I'm like, dude, people do this. And so I remember reaching out to him at the end of 22 and being like, talk to me about this ultra stuff, man. Like, I don't know, like, what is this? And he's like, dude, it's super cool. Everybody's super cool. It's super fun. It's a crazy experience. You feel insane after. And he gave me this really profound speech about like how cool this community is. <laughs> And so that's when I decided to try it. And he was signing up for 24 hours of Palmer and he's like, you used to run 24 hours of Palmer with me. And I was like, okay. And mind you, 24 hours of Palmer was like 10 months from that point. When I signed up, I hadn't even run more than 20 miles in my life. And then because I knew that this was in the horizon, I was like, man, well, I got to start running some more. Right. And so at the, at the beginning, it was like January. Um, at the beginning of 2023, I signed up for my first marathon ever, which was um, Run Through Time in Salida. Um, it was a trail marathon that had about 4,000 feet of vertical over it. Definitely an optimistic goal for somebody <laughs> who had never run anything like that. And it was a humbling experience for me, absolutely, that showed me a lot of weaknesses in my training, showed me um, a lot of... Um, dark places mentally that I was able to figure out how to push through. And the finish of that race was amazing. Um, that was a super, super cool experience. And then, um, just kind of kept running some more and then Palmer came around and that was kind of the thing that locked it in for me where I was like, this is where I want to be like, this is cool. This is, this is fun stuff. So, um, I had right before Palmer actually is, um, at the end of August, um, a mentor of mine and his wife have done Leadville 100, um, a couple times. Um, his wife ran it, I think his wife has ran it and completed it multiple times. And he's done the mountain bike 100, um, 10 times and completed it and got a big, it got time. the thousand mile buckle. Yeah. got yeah. the buckle. Um, so some super, super inspiring people who I, um, am very thankful for their presence, um, in my life, Daryl and Debbie, thank you. Um, but they, um, they have been big inspirations for this on me. And I was at dinner with Daryl one, one night of, I think it was probably in July. It was late July, and he's talking to me about the Leadville 100, and he's like, if you can volunteer for it, you absolutely should because it's a crazy experience. And so I was like, absolutely. Like, I, I, I respect this guy more than anything, and if he's telling me to do this, then I'll do it. I'm doing it. And so that night I went on to um, Leadville site and tried to sign up for it, and at that moment there was one volunteer slot left out of all aid stations, out of everything, and it was for Hope Pass, which at that point in time I didn't know what Hope Pass was. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know what Leadville 100 is, it's a hundred mile ultra trail, ultra marathon through the mountains of Leadville. That's about 10,000 feet on average. You have 30 hours to complete it and you'll do about 15 plus thousand feet of vertical feet over a hundred miles. And it is a harrowing experience, um, for all of those people. And it's quite the undertaking to complete. I mean, it is, it is up there as at least in my eyes, that's probably one of the hardest the, things yeah. that you can do on the planet. I mean, that is that is quite a feat if you can accomplish Leadville 100 trail run. Um, and so I went up there in August, and I was able to volunteer Hope Pass, and I was super thankful for it. I uh, met a guy named Jim Hall who ran it back in 2018, who was our um, shift leader for um, that shift that I had for first shift on, on um, Hope Pass aid station. And I just got to learn a lot and I got to see a lot of people who were really, really driven people, um, that just ooze 
gratitude and they ooze positivity because they live it during this race in a dark place that's really tough to be in. But the second they see you at the top of Hope Pass, which is the highest point in the highest aid station in Leadville 100, um, you see these people come up and when they see you, their eyes just light up and they're like, wow, I'm so thankful you guys are here. Um, because anybody who doesn't know the Hope Pass climb is a 3000 foot climb and, and from the Twin Lakes side heading up to Hope Pass, it's a five mile climb with 3000 vertical feet. And then it's a three and a half mile descent down 3000 vertical feet down to a short run to Winfield. And then you have to do it back. So the people who I would see come up this, this hill were already, I mean, that's at mile 43. You see me, um, for the first time at Hope Pass. So you're 43 miles into this race and you just climbed this mountain and now you see me up there and there's this giant field with a bunch of llamas up there and there's like a medical tent and there's these kitchen tents all set up and it's just a sight to see. It's an amazing, amazing place to be. Um, and I just felt so thankful to be there and to help all these runners and help all these people who are just out there trying to do probably the hardest thing they have ever done in their life. And to be around people with that mindset, it just infects you with this feeling of like, I have to do this. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't not do this now. And so, um, I, my friend Cindy, who I met at um, run through time in Salida. She was planning on running Leadville last year, ended up getting hurt, and she deferred till 2024. Um, she is very, very graciously donating some of her volunteer hours to me so that I can hit the volunteer hour minimum, minimum to enter preferred lottery for Leadville. So the chances of me getting into the Leadville lottery are pretty fair. Yeah. I'm not going to say 100 because it never is, um, but they're, they're pretty good. So my goal this year for 2024 is to run and complete Leadville 100. Um, that, that, that is the thing. And I think that, you know, for me setting goals that are that high, um, is what keeps me moving. You know, I think, you know, when I started at, you know, in, at the beginning of 2023, I'd never run more than 20 miles in my entire life. Yeah. Um, and then I did a trail marathon. I'd done a bunch more running in between. And then at Palmer Lake, I was able to knock out a little over 81 miles in 24 hours. And then Dead Horse 50K. And then Dead Horse 50K last weekend, which um, went great. Um, you know, I did pretty well, all things considered. Definitely recognized, once again, some more weaknesses in my training. And I think that's something important to, you know, recognize as as any kind of athlete, whether professional or recreational, that, you know, you put yourself in these positions where you have to focus on um, where the weaknesses are, you know what I mean? And you can't turn away from them. You know, if I just did flat road running my entire life, I wouldn't recognize that my hip flexors aren't very strong and that my glutes are not very strong and my hamstrings aren't very strong. And then, you know, you get into this trail running and you start pushing that kind of boundary of like what you're comfortable doing and you start recognizing these weaknesses, not only in, in your training, but you start recognizing these weaknesses in your psyche as mm -hmm. well. And that's where a lot of the training comes in too. And we were talking about this earlier where this sport of ultra in my mind is 50% training. I mean, you got to get miles in. You're not going to run 100 miles just by, you know, eating some chicken nuggets and waking up the next morning and wanting to do it. It's just not going to happen. Um, so 50% of it is training. You have to put in the time and you have to put in the miles and the strength training to be able to get it done. But the other 50% is cultivating your, I'll use how Courtney DeWalter says it, pain cave. Yep. You know, you have to design your pain cave. You got to put furniture in there. You got to, you know, get real comfortable. You, you got to get real comfy in there to be able to start kind of doing this stuff. And I think that that's just so cool to be around people who want to spend time there because they have this, all those people who want to spend time in that dark place are the most positive, inspiring, fun, 
caring, kind people I've ever met in my life. And they're the most supportive too. And that's what's so cool about this community is that everybody's out here to do something that a lot of people don't think is possible. And I'm sure at one point in their life, they didn't think they could do it either. But then proving to yourself you can do it, it provides a different level of value to the relationship you have with yourself. Where you're like, I really didn't think I could do this. Back at the beginning of 2023, if you asked me if I was going to do 100 miles in 24 hours, I would have thought you're insane. Yeah. And I, all full clarity, I didn't complete 124 and I was a little bit bummed about that, but I learned a lot through the 24 hours at Palmer experience and still completing 81 and finishing fifth and men's ninth overall during that race. I was, I was happy with that result. However, there's still that piece in me where I'm like, I could do better. We're, we'll be back. We we'll be back. That. We'll be back. I'm not done. I'm not done. Palmer Lake is already on the calendar for me. Mark. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I can't wait for absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, it's cool. Cause well, what you just described is people like you. And that's why I'm so grateful that you, you know, have, have given me some of your time. And, you know, it, it, even big takeaway for me from that, from what you just said, is to, you know, set massive goals and pursue them relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Because we've realized what we're capable of, yep. whether it's life and overcoming these tremendous adversities that you have running around in a circle for 24 hours, you know, anything else in between, we are capable of so much more. And you are the prime example of that in such a powerful, powerful way. And so I want to thank you for being here, for letting me pick your brain, for letting me be a part of your life, because it means a ton to me. Um, And thank you for being who you are. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for, you know, being willing to sit with the adversity and deal with it and and come out the other side stronger. Thank you for choosing these different paths of letting it define you or fuel you, as you said. I mean, even through this conversation today, I have nugget after nugget after nugget of amazing insight and perspective that is going to inspire a whole lot of people. Um, and so I just want to thank you so much for that. And I have a, a gift for you. It's an inspire by example shirt. Oh, awesome. Because Sean, you genuinely inspire me by the example that you're living. And I can't thank you enough because the world needs more people like you, especially looking at, you know, the life path that you've had, to sit in front of me today and you know share the story and, and to see where you're headed, it's remarkable. So thank you for thank you for everything. Well, thank you, man. I um you know I I haven't really had a chance to to really vocalize how honored I feel to be here um, and how honored I am to be invited into this space where I get to you know share my story um, with you know not only you who I consider a great friend and and who I feel like I've known for a really long time and I feel like we share a whole lot of similarities as far as how we see life and how we want to better ourselves and um, you know how we want to impact others I think that um, you're just an amazing individual who has an amazing amazing podcast and you have an amazing direction with with what you want to do for you know the people around you and the people who watch your podcast you know um, you know inspire by example and chasing greatness. I think that those two things are, are things that I, you know, really, really resonate with and being able to be here and talk with you and have, you know, these really penetrating questions asked to me that really kind of dig up this 
this really genuine want to inspire not only you, but the people who are listening and, you know, it provides some fuel for myself. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, what, what you have going here is, is something that is very, very rare. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of people need to, need to recognize its value. It's something that doesn't happen very often. And I think that there's very few people on this planet who push, push this envelope of trying to inspire by example, as hard as you do. And I'm so thankful you're here. I'm so thankful I met you at Palmer and I can't wait for some more training runs. I can't wait to run, run Arches, Arches Ultra. Yeah. Thanks yep. a lot. Yeah. I'll be cursing you. While we're <laughs> oh, I'll be, I'll be cheering you on, man. I can't, you're probably gonna, I'm probably gonna curse you a little bit and watch you beat me on this. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I just can't wait to see what this, you know, relationship continues to evolve into and we'll see if you can convince me to run Buffalo 100 with you here in March. I'll keep working on it. Yeah, dude. I don't think you're far away from convincing <laughs> me to do it. So we'll see how it goes. Sean, thank you so much. Absolutely, man. Thank you.